Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hello, I'm Gail. And I'm Catherine. We are the active voice of women over 70, aging reimagined. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Please visit our website, womenover70.com, where you can download the playlist of all the episodes. We also invite you to join our podcast discussion club, and we welcome being asked to speak to your organization or group. So each week, we showcase vital women between the ages of 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myths that we become invisible as we age. These women lead fulfilling lives for themselves and others. And today we're so excited to bring to you Katherine Howison. She's 74 and lives in Houston, Texas. Kathy is a prolific author and retired Lutheran pastor. She combines her degree in journalism and her Master of Divinity degree to write about good people doing great things in the global village. Before beginning a second career as a pastor, her diverse work experience included the Ohio Department of Natural Resources and outdoor drama public relations for a small college and a large university news service office. During that time, she also launched a freelance writing career, publishing over 75 articles and resources in dozens of national and regional publications. Kathy has published six books, and her latest, Mayflower Chronicles, The Tale of Two Cultures, is her debut historical fiction. It covers European events that prompted a small group of religious rebels to establish a new English colony in North America and the impact this decision had on the native community. Kathy, we're, we are really excited to have you here to discuss this topic and other things about yourself. Well, thank you. It's a, it's a real pleasure to get to talk with you two today. I have been, you have been keeping me company in the little bit of driving around that I've been doing. I've been mostly home because of COVID, but I do go out once in a while, and I listen to your podcast when I'm doing that. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Uh, so I understand that this is the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower? It is. And so there's been a lot of energy focused on this year. Plans have been unfolding for the past couple of years uh, in Plymouth, Massachusetts, of course, where the pilgrims actually settled, but also in uh, places in England that are part of their pilgrim path and in Leiden in the Netherlands where they lived in exile for about a decade uh, and even in the Native American uh, nations. Uh, there's been a lot of excitement about this year. The replica of the Mayflower was put in dry dock for a while and refurbished and recently got back home uh, to the New England Harbor. So a lot of energy went into this year, and then one by one, like dominoes falling, event after event was canceled. So it's been very disappointing for those of us who had these events on our calendar for some time. Yes, for sure, because of COVID. And and so did you take part in any of the these events? Well, I had planned to. Um, I only have one brother living now, and he and I are the last of our generation 
in our branch of the Brewster family. We had made plans to spend about a week over in New England. We had signed up for a, a very large extended family banquet with the Brewster family. We were very excited about getting to meet some cousins that we we knew they existed, but we didn't know them personally. Oh, uh, and then that event got canceled. So no, I haven't participated in person in anything because everything's been either canceled or postponed because of COVID. What a shame. What I actually hear that Plymouth right now is one of the hot spots. And it's a small community. They get a tremendous amount of traffic because of their historic significance. But the actual people who live there year round is fairly small. I, I'm not good at guessing numbers, but I, if I had to say, I'd say it's under 50,000 residents. But it's a hot spot. And so they're very careful and, and they don't want a lot of live activities right now. Mm. Kathy, you've done, you obviously have done a great deal of writing and, and publishing of your work. And I'm wondering how writing uh, historical fiction uh, differs from what you've already done and what were uh, some of the, the challenges of, of doing that. Well, one of the big challenges was just the size of the project. Um, when you start doing research, you know, one thing leads to another, and the next thing you know, you are overwhelmed with data. So finding information is not the problem. Managing the flow of information and then figuring out how to organize uh, becomes the problem. So that was a challenge. I've written a lot of nonfiction, and so I'm used to that genre. But with historical fiction, I was also making a, a lot of dialogue between characters. Nearly all of the characters in the book are actually real people, or they, you know, they're deceased, but they were real people. There are only a few secondary people to just like somebody in a shop kind of a thing that I had to invent. All the rest of them are real. Uh, so that part wasn't hard, but making up the dialogue between them was, and there were some places in the historical record where there are gaps uh, it, because they didn't know they were gonna be famous, so they didn't write down absolutely every single thing that they did. Uh, so there's some gaps in the story that I've had to go back and fill in. But it was kind of fun. Uh, it takes a village to write a book. I did not do this alone. I had a research assistant helping me find some places to do some interviews. I actually hired a writing coach, a fellow that I'd met here in Houston at a writer's conference I went to a while ago. I won a drawing for a half hour of his time. And I used that half hour to bounce around some different ways to get at this story. And actually none of the initial ideas worked out. But in the end, we end up writing a straight historical fiction divided into five parts to kind of cover the whole story in some way that made sense. Mm -hmm. What, what uh, prompted you to want to take on this project? My mother was a reference librarian and she spent her early retirement years in a genealogy library documenting that we are indeed related to William and Mary Brewster. I inherited her notes. I didn't do very much with them for years. I was busy doing other things, but that was always in the back of my mind. And then my daughter married into a large Latino family here in Houston. And some of those people have significant portions of native DNA. Now it's not a part that's relevant to the Mayflower story. It's down here in the Texas, Mexico area, but still it's native American. And so my three grandchildren from that union are um, bicultural. And I've spent many holidays with their other set of grandparents. And we've gotten to be good friends because we share these three children in common as grandchildren. And so that's gotten me to be aware that my experience growing up in this country has been different than their experience growing up in this country. And I became more curious about that. And that's what really prompted me 
to write this book from the perspective of two cultures. I wanted both groups in one book. There are plenty of books about the Mayflower, uh, some written by people directly involved with the journey and, and others uh, that have come along since and researched it. And they're becoming a growing list of books by native authors. But I had not yet come across one that tried to tell both sides of the story in the same book. I didn't realize it at the time, but in retrospect, looking back on it, I think I was significantly influenced by the fact that I'm a middle child and only daughter. And so in my growing up family, my father was a civil engineer. He traveled a lot. He'd be gone for sometimes months at a time on a project overseas, which put my older brother as the man of the house. He's six years older than me. And then dad would come home and my older brother was expected to revert back to role of one of the kids in the family. And so there were some enthusiastic conversations <laughs> over all of that at times in my childhood. And so I grew up as a middle child, seeing both points of view and trying to get people to just get along with one another and keep things calmed down. And I think that really is what prompted me to want to tell the Native side of the story along with the English side of the story. I'm trying to imagine, Kathy, what it would be like to create the dialogue, uh, rep the dialogue re representing na the Native community, Native people. Did How did... How did you learn to do that? Well, I, I relied on a lot of help. I read a lot of books. I read a lot of articles. I went to Plymouth. It was called Plymouth Plantation in Plymouth, Massachusetts until a few months ago. It's now been renamed Plymouth Patoxet. It's one of these living history museums like Williamsburg. I went there. I spent a whole, I've been there three times, but the last time I went, I spent the entire day there. I read every plaque and bit of information I could find. I sat in on, on what lectures were available. And I had in advance secured a chance to interview the man who was the head of the native village part of that place. So he was gracious enough to give me an hour of his time. And then I found a native editor who was willing to review what I'd come up with so far and answer some questions about you know, things like uh, a, a typical diet, what a typical day in a life of uh, a Native American in that time period would be like, that sort of thing. The, the one that I am the most excited about is just a very serendipitous story. A friend of mine that I met at a writing conference a year ago lives in Rhode Island. And I was trying to find one more set of Native eyes to go over the manuscript before we officially released it to be published. And I wasn't getting anywhere. Um, everybody that I talked to told me to go call so-and-so, who told me to go call so-and-so, and, and I was just hitting a brick wall. So in one final desperate plea, I reached out to my friend Beth and asked her if she knew anybody in a local high school or college or museum in the area that might have a lead. So she put it on the Next Door Neighbor app. <laughs> she said she had a friend in Houston looking for some natives to review a manuscript. Did anybody know anybody? And this amazing woman named Tracy Brown, who is a native herself, she popped up and said, well, yeah, oh, I know something about that. We're descended from a fellow named Massasoit Usamegwin. He was the grand leader of all of the leaders of the area in 1620. Um, I'd be happy to talk to her. So she and I had an initial phone conversation. And then she set up an interview with me and her father, who is the Sagamore, which is the equivalent of the, the head leader of the Poconocet Nation, and her son, who is the tribal historian. So the three of them let me interview them. 
And then with a fair amount of fear and trepidation, I sent them the book to read. And I honestly was a little bit afraid they might say, oh, please don't publish this. This is just not right. And we just don't need any more wrong information out there. But that was not the reaction. Their reaction was to be very grateful that I had reached out to them. And they have written the forward to the book. Oh, wow. So that, and we are now friends. In fact, they invited me to come and meet with their tribal council last summer. They had some special big event on their calendar and invited me to come and meet the tribal council. And I plan to, but COVID mm -hmm. closed all that down. So that has oh, not yet goodness. happened. So all of that could still happen sometime in the future. Yeah. yeah. We're hoping yeah. so, yes. Timing is everything, isn't it? <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, this year. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so let's go back a little bit, and then we can come back to the book if you like. But I'm curious to know about your degrees and your work as a pastor and and uh, the Ohio Department of Natural Resources and as a drama, doing a drama. Tell, tell us a little bit about your <laughs> Well, I, I don't seem to stick with one thing for very long. I've always wanted to be a writer. I knew that in high school. I was significantly influenced by English teachers who kept giving me A's and, and good comments on my essays that I had to hand in. I worked on a student newspaper uh, in high school. And Mrs. Keller uh, was a wonderful resource in my life. So when I went to college, I majored in journalism and learned how to do freelance writing. We had to hand in an article every week of different kinds of articles, but we had to write one every week and bring a receipt from the post office that we had attempted to sell it. He obviously could not make us sell an article, but he could guarantee that we were trying. And I actually sold my first article for pay to the Cleveland Plain Dealer in the spring of my senior year of college uh, in that class. So, and then that, that is just like a drug. Once you get a check and see your name byline in print, it, it is really addictive. So I wanted to be a writer. And so um, I got married um, about a year after I graduated from college. I met my husband in college. I was working in the public relations office of a small liberal arts college in Ohio. We had planned uh, to get married and have a couple of kids. And then I kind of imagined myself being Proles Buck, sitting in this wonderful library out in the country overlooking a pasture where my horse would be grazing and my children would be busy doing whatever they were up to that day. And I would be cranking out all kinds of stories. That part of the dream never quite came to pass. We got married when my husband still had a year of college to go. and. Um, we told our older daughter she was wanted, but she was two years premature. We thought we'd have both of us would have our degrees and we'd have an income, uh, but she showed up when he still had another quarter of college to go. So those are some pretty tight years. And back in those days, we're talking the late sixties, early seventies, women who were going to have babies typically didn't get maternity leave. They went home, which is what I did. So I went home and I started just start writing. Um, my girls would go to a Mother's Day out kind of a program. And every minute that they weren't in the house, I was clacking away on the typewriter, sending things out for speculation and selling a fair amount of things. When they were old enough to start public school, um, I applied for a job. You'll, you'll appreciate this. So this was 1975. I applied for a job at the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. And so did my best friend. 
she and I were both writers. And one day a week, I would watch all four kids. One day a week, she would watch all four kids. And if we ever had the combination of money, time, and energy at the same time, we'd park the kids in the back seat and we'd take off on an adventure somewhere. Well, neither one of us realized the other one was applying for this job and we made it to the top five. Mm-hmm. Oh and so we got this brilliant idea that we could timeshare the job. I mean, we obviously knew that we got along well. Uh, we knew that we could w- watch each other's kids. We'd been doing that. So we went in to this man who was probably in his 40s and single and probably hadn't been around a live child since his own childhood and pitched this idea to him that we can do Monday through noon on Wednesday and then you know, Wednesday afternoon through Friday. We can do every other week. Uh, we can do half days. Uh, any combination and we can cover for each other on vacations and sick days. And he must've stared at us for five minutes with his jaw dropped to his chin, speechless. He had no idea what to do with this. And finally he said, that won't work. Mm-hmm. So I ended up taking the job and she and I are still friends. We still talk periodically. And to this day we debate which one of us won and which one of us lost because it, it, it wasn't a wonderful job. I, I am not cut out to be a state bureaucrat. I'd be there at eight, stay till five. And if you do any work in between, nobody will complain. But <laughs> it, it just wasn't for me. But a year of that was enough. So you left there. And, and when did you become a pastor? Well, uh, we were moving a lot during those days. And one of our moves took us back to central Ohio. We had been in Columbus for a while. And then we'd moved to a couple of other places for my husband's jobs. And we landed one county over from Columbus, Ohio. I decided, you know, if I got a master's degree, I could teach creative writing. You can't swing a dead cat in Ohio without landing on the campus of some kind of a college. Mm-hmm. So I decided I'll get a master's degree and I can teach continuing or creative writing and that'll supplement the income because, you know, you establish local contacts with local editors and then you move and it takes a while to build those relationships. So my options were Ohio State University. I knew a lot about that. My mother-in-law had worked there for years, but it was further away from where we actually lived. And it is a huge mega complex of a university. I'm going to spend all of my life trying to find a parking spot. So I ruled that one out. The closest to us was Capital University. It's a small Lutheran affiliated uh, liberal arts college. It's got an excellent reputation and several people in the family have graduated from there. But all they offered by way of graduate programs was an MBA, which I was really not interested in, although in retrospect, that would have been very helpful, or or law degree, which I was really not interested in, or the seminary, which was across the street. And we were Lutherans, and, and I knew a lot of people in the Lutheran community. One of them was on the faculty there. So I walked into his office one day and said, well, I've got this really harebrained idea. Could I come here and study and get a master's degree and not become a pastor? I'm interested in knowing more about church history. I was not raised in the church. We were moving all the time. Uh, My mom tried now and then to get us established, but about the time she did, we'd move again for my dad's job. And so he said, yes, actually you can. You can come here and do that. And at the end of the year, you'll know whether this was the right place for you or not, and we'd be glad to have you. So I started in and I I just loved it. I was just thoroughly fascinated with everything that I was learning. I was actually designing a major in church communications. This is the era when televangelism was starting to really take hold. And I thought there might be a more helpful response to that than just turn off the TV. So I, I wanted to understand why that was bad theology. A lot of people assured me it was bad theology, but I didn't know why. So 
I was kind of killing two birds with one stone. I was earning a master's so I could teach creative writing. And I was learning about an area of my life that has some big gaps in it. A year into that, my husband was offered the job of a lifetime down here in Houston. He really, really, really wanted that job. And I figure there must be lots of ways I can get a master's degree. So we moved to Houston in 1982. I spent a year wandering around the countryside talking to all kinds of people. And the common message I was getting back was, you know, you really could just become a pastor. And this was the early 80s, and my denomination had only been ordaining women since 1970. I had seen other female pastors. In fact, one presided over my grandmother's funeral. But they were not common, and it was not anything I had ever intended to do. I never intended to be a Lutheran. I married into the Lutheran church and didn't see any objections to it, so I joined. I never intended to be a Texan, and I never (laughs) intended to be a pastor. And here I am, a retired Lutheran pastor in Texas. <laughs> wow, that's quite a journey. Yeah. <laughs> and certainly demonstrate tremendous resilience and flexibility and uh, creativity. And it sounds like moving. You moved a lot as a child. You moved a lot in your adulthood. What are, what have, what are some of the, the tools or the sort of the resources that you've gained from all of that movement? Well, I was raised by a tribe of strong women. So so I have that in my favor. I, I, there's some wonderful women in my family tree. I, I don't know exactly where I picked this up, but I cling to the idea that you have to focus on what you can do and quit fretting about what you can't do because you can't do anything about what you can't do anything about. So find something that you can do and just start. Uh, I've been through several hurricanes down here. I've been involved with some hurricane disaster response work, and I picked up the model uh, after Hurricane Katrina, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. And if you just do that, then doors begin to open up. I mean, this is really no point, not that I don't ever do this, but there's no point in fretting about what can't be done. Uh, It's just a waste of energy. So it's more productive to think about what, what, what can you do? And it has not all this move sailing. I, my first book came about after we moved to Houston. It was our fourth move in five years. And I was never diagnosed, but I'm pretty sure I was clinically depressed. I was just so tired of brown boxes and starting over again and dealing with my daughter's angst about having left their best friend behind and starting a new school system. They were in six school systems before they graduated from high school. So I I was depressed, but I was taking some classes at the University of Houston. They had an extension very near where we lived. And I had this wonderful uh, academic advisor who was also a mental health uh, counselor type person, beautiful, beautiful black woman named Erlene. And she just listened to me pour out the saga hour after hour and patiently listened and gently guided me. And she's the one that finally said, you know, I think you really wanted to finish your Master of Divinity degree. That's really kind of what I'm hearing. Is there any way you can do that? Well, no, not at the University of Houston, but there was over in Austin. And so I I finished my degree in Austin. And then did, did you actually work uh, as, a, as a pastor? Were you a working pastor? Yes. Yes. I had a wonderful bishop. His name is Phil Wahlberg. His wife would have been a pastor 
were it possible, but by the time we were ordaining women, she was nearly a grandmother and she just, at that point in her life, she was focused on other things. But if somebody complained to him that the problem was that he permitted the ordination of women and he responded by saying, no, that's not true. We do not permit it, we promote it. And so he became a very big advocate for me. Uh, he arranged for my first call, which was a wonderful situation with a dear, dear colleague up in um, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, a community called Grapevine. If you've ever fly through Dallas, you've been in Grapevine. <laughs> so, and we had a wonderful time. Uh, my husband became the trailing spouse. I'd been the trailing spouse several times. It was his turn. Uh, the girls got settled fairly quickly. It was a wonderful community, and they just kind of really embraced all of us. And it was a great situation for a year until my colleague, who was a senior pastor, decided he needed to go back home. He was an only son and his elderly mother was in her nineties and his kids were not quite yet in high school and thought we need to move before the kids start high school. And in the system in which I was a pastor, when the senior pastor leaves, so does the associate, oh. it's just clean house. So there we were. <laughs> so we, we put our foot down. That's how I get an outdoor ministry. Uh, we said by then the girls were in high school and we had promised them when we moved to Grapevine, this is the last school district. That is the stage you will walk across to graduate. If we're eating peanut butter and crackers the last year. Uh, we are not moving until you have your degrees. So I got into outdoor ministry. We had a, a camp program not too far from the house, about a half hour drive. And I got involved planning some retreats and, hiring some summer staff and things like that. And, and I loved it. So uh, we did that. The girls graduated. We had a chance to come back to Ohio. We did. This is a long story. I'm going to cut it short. But I ended up being a camp director for eight years back in Texas, which I also loved. I just really liked everything about it. I had a wonderful group of people that I worked with, my board of directors, my year-round staff, the people in the community. It was a great experience. And I did that for eight years. But by then, my girls were married and having their own children, and the children were getting to be school age. I thought, if I'm going to spend any quantity of time with my grandchildren, it has to be during the summer when they're not in school. And I can't leave 100 college age or 100 of other people's kids under the supervision of college age kids unattended for more than a few days at a time. Uh, so I asked the board to find somebody else. And, and at that point, I moved back into Houston. And I had a couple of last things that I did church-wise before I retired in 2014. You know, Kathy, um, <laughs> you, you are the epitome of reinvention. But I, I would like to, in the time, little time that we have left, I, you said to me when we spoke, uh, that aging is mandatory, but maturing is optional. And I would love to know, you know, how you came to that conclusion and, and what it means to you. Well, aging is obvious. I mean, unless you die, you're going to keep adding a birthday every 12 months. But maturing to me means learning to put life in perspective, except that no matter how wonderful or how awful any given day is, it is just a day. The, the, the horrible is not going to last forever. There will be sunshine again. And the sunny days are not going to last forever. There will be trials and tribulations again. So it's not all that helpful to rail against the universe about that. It's just the way that it is. And so to me, maturity is the ability to just put it in perspective, 
One of the phrases I picked up from my grandmother was, this too shall pass. Uh, recently added, added the phrase, it may pass like a kidney stone, but this too shall pass. We will not be in COVID-19 forever. And then the other thing I think is, what's the point? What's the point of being allowed to live a long life, of living long enough to see the next generation born and then to watch them raise the next generation? I think is to have learned something and to share that information and that wisdom, um, not only on a when asked to do so basis, because sometimes people don't even know that they need to ask a question, but not to bombard people with information they're not asking for, but to be available, to be on call. I've got six young adults in my life, my grandchildren raising an age from 27 now, down to the youngest just turned 21 a couple months ago. And uh, three of them have been through heartbreaks. Uh, they thought there were going to be uh, engagements and there weren't, there were breakups instead. And uh, so to just reassure them, this is just one chapter of your life. It, feels horrible right now and it is heartbreaking but it's only one chapter and you will survive this and you will learn something from it and you'll have wisdom to share with other people who are going through things uh, i think that's what maturity is yeah yeah it's taking taking our wisdom and doing something with it that's useful yeah. yes yeah well catherine did you have any other questions I was just thinking about the maturity and when I was learning about human development and was, was informed that um, becoming more mature doesn't necessarily mean uh, doesn't guarantee happiness. It just basically means that you can recognize the complexities of life and navigate through them in constructive, most constructive ways possible. And, and so I don't know if that fits at all with what you just said, Kathy, but that's what, what came to mind when you were talking about maturity. Well, we, I think we do get to choose where we focus. I, I don't want to over-exaggerate the glass half full, half empty argument, but we do get to focus, uh, what, choose what we will focus on. And so on any given day, I mean, I can think about the aches and pains that I'm getting as I keep adding years to my life, uh, or I can think about all the places I've gotten to go and all the things I've gotten to do. Mm -hmm. Well, we wish you good luck with, with your latest book, Mayflower Chronicles, The Tale of Two Cultures. And it's a shame that, that COVID happened and the 400th anniversary was not able to happen as you as you had hoped. But I book will be, will be one that is uh, outlives this and, and lives on for, for much, much longer. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So thanks. Thanks for being with us. We really enjoyed hearing about you and uh, we appreciate that you've been here with us. Well, it really has been my pleasure. So it's been a joy talking with both of you and I am promoting you. Uh, I keep telling people about you because I have a lot of friends in their seventies. Surprise, surprise. So do you need to know about this place? Thank you. Thank you, Kathy, so much for joining us and listeners. Please leave a review where you listen to podcasts and become an active participant in our community through the Facebook group and our monthly Zoom gatherings. So we'll see you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined.
Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myths that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.